marry Beth Osterlin. <laughs> anyway, I get to marry Beth Osterlin to her fiance Jordan. What a great, what a great privilege. I'm not marrying them, I am marrying them. So I'm not a bigamist. So. <laughs> okay, let's get that out of the way. But here would be the tragedy. If after going through the ceremony and, you know, saying all the I do's and signing the wedding certificate, and after that, that each one in the, the new couple actually went back to their homes of their parents, moved back in separately, you know, one, the wife to their parents and, and the husband to his parents, and they started being dependent upon, you know, their parents again, just like they were as they were kids. And, and someone might come up to them and say, I, I thought you got married. Oh, we did. Yeah, you know, we signed the certificate. We had a, a great ceremony and plenty of witnesses and, and, you know, had a kicking, you know, reception. Yeah, yeah, I know, but you guys aren't living together. You're living apart. Well, who are you to judge me? I mean, we signed it. You know, they're witnesses. The pastor signed it. We're married. We're man and wife. And technically, they're right. But it's not what marriage was intended to be. You see, marriage is not an event. It's a entering on a whole new lifestyle, building a whole new family, creating a whole new existence, if you will. To just return back to your parents' house and pretend like life goes on as, as normal, that, that's not what marriage is intended to do. Marriage is not a bucket list event. It's a life changer. And the same is true in following Christ. The Christian life. See, faith is not just a one-time transaction. It's a transformation. It's not just an event. It's an exchanged life. And the Apostle Paul, as we saw last week, is excited about the faith of a group of who I would call his spiritual grandchildren. A disciple of his, Epaphras, has planted a church in a town called Colossae and also in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And Paul's excited about this. And now he's addressing them. And he wants to offer up a prayer and encouragement that will help them continue in their faith in Christ. He presents what I call broad strokes, what it means to continue growing in their faith in Him. Especially as they're going to experience also some spiritual opposition and some false teaching. So, before we jump in, we're going to be in the first chapter of Colossians, if you want to just put your finger in there. But let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. So Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this Sunday where we remember Jesus that you are God's Messiah. You are the one who came for us to build a kingdom that starts in our hearts and one day will realize itself in a new heaven and a new earth. But now as we look into your word and as we wait between now and the time you come back, 
we pray that you will make us people who are faithful to you. And if, Lord, as already been prayed, if there's somebody who does not know you here in this room, I pray, Lord, that you would draw that man, that woman to yourself and help them to see the life that they have for you. So do your work through your word in us. And Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. So here we are at verse 9 through verse 14 in chapter 1 of Colossians. Paul is writing to, like I said, kind of his spiritual grandchildren. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience." and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So if you are with us last week, you saw Paul giving thanksgiving for what's happening into these, these new believers, this new church. Thanksgiving because they've responded to the gospel, and the gospel changes everything. It changes their identity, our identity, from sinners to saints, from foreigners to family. It changes us from the inside out in the area of faith, what we put our trust in, in the area of, of, of love, but God changes our ability to love one another and our hope where we think this whole world is going. It is going to wind up in the hands of the living God. Again, who's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth? It changes the world. This message is not just for one little area in Colossae, not one little area in Rochester. It goes throughout the world and it's changing. It's bearing fruit and we get to be a part of something that is greater than ourselves in our own little corner of the world. And this is going to go out to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it changes who life is about. You see, so often we're addicted to ourselves. It was true then, it's true now, and we can be self-consumed. Paul is saying, look, I'm not looking to shine the spotlight on myself. I'm not looking to shine the light on Epaphras. I'm looking to shine the light on Jesus Christ who sent him, who sent me, and of whom we're fellow servants. So this good church has had a good start out of the blocks. And so Paul offers his prayers and his, his encouragement in their faith for their faith as they continue. But it starts out just with that, with prayers. So the encouragement of knowing you are being prayed for. Again, he says in verse 9, the first half, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. I'm so encouraged, and now I want to keep praying for you. I have not stopped. And that doesn't mean he's praying 24-7. That means, though, he's constantly, habitually, consistently praying for them, for their spiritual health, for their growth. And here's the nature of prayer. It is not just talking to the air. It's not just putting forth 
you know, words that, you know, might seem sound eloquent, but are just kind of fancy schmancy. It is talking to the God of the universe, interceding in Jesus' name to make a difference for that person's or that group's spiritual protection and well-being. You know, if you read through uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and you talk about, you know, the, the spiritual armor that you put on the last actually item is that of praying for one another in order that uh, you might hold one another up. And at the end of this letter, he's going to talk about devoting yourself to prayer. I don't know about you, but when someone says to me, and I know that they're praying for me, I am praying for you, that is a huge, huge encouragement. It's a huge encouragement because I know that that person is lifting me up to the Lord. And oftentimes, you know, when we talk with each other, say, hey, how are you doing? You know, hi, not so good. This is going on. Hey, I'll pray for you. I think that's a, in, in one way, a good way to say, hey, I care for you. But my question is, are we doing it? Are you doing it? Are you lifting that person up to the Father in Jesus' name? Don't say, I'm, I'll pray for you and not do it. Do that. Lift that person up. You know, Justin Long? Anybody know Justin Long here? Anyone know he's more than just a janitor? He comes by my office on Fridays, says, hey, how are you doing, Pastor Nathan? And we start talking, and I start sharing with him some of the things that are concerning my heart. He says, hey, I'll pray for you. In fact, I'm going to stop right now. And so he prays for me right there in the office, you know. I'm the pastor, I'm, prayed to, I'm paid to pray, right? But Justin says, no, I'm, I'm praying for you, Pastor Nathan, for what you know, what's going on in your family, for what's going on in your ministry, the things that you're concerned about, I'm going to lift them up to the Father for you. What a great way to be supported by my brother, Justin. I so appreciate that. But here's my point. When you say you're going to pray for somebody, either do it right there or, or make sure that you're going to be praying for them because that is important. We're lifting each other up to the Father. So, Let's talk about what Paul was praying for about this young church. Praying that they would know God's will. Second half of verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Knowing God's will is probably not necessarily specific direction for your life. Like, who am I going to marry? What job am I going to have? Where am I going to live? Or what am I going to do? God, I think, oftentimes real, you know, reveals those things actually along the way in life's journey. But sometimes I think we turn God into a, a, a cosmic fortune teller. Tell me how this is all going to play out. And God says, you know, I operate more on a need-to-know basis. And by the way, your faith will be built that way much better than me t- giving you the whole thing before you actually get there. Because you might not like every episode. But rather, it is having a big picture knowledge of what God is doing in the world. Knowledge that God has sent His Son to save men and women from every nation, that they might be reconciled to Him and become His people. What Paul's going to talk about a little later in this same letter, in the same chapter, verse 26, is that this is a mystery. This is something that has been covered up for centuries. 
but now is being revealed. You know, it's, it's really interesting from our perspective. This is a message that's more than 2,000 years old. But when the Colossians first received it, it's about 30 plus years old. A whole new chapter of salvation history. God is actually interested in making people from every tribe and tongue and nation His people. Not just the Jews. And not to despair the Jews. In fact, this is the tree I'm grafting you into as far as God's people. But you're becoming a part of God's people. This is an amazing thing. These Gentiles who were once separated from God are now God's saints. His holy ones in Christ Jesus adopted by God. This is what God is doing in the world. That's what I want you to know. And you're part of this. And because of that, I want to give you a moral vision for who you are as God's holy people. How you should behave and what your future hope is. Second of all, I want you to have wisdom. That is skill to live a life in accordance with who God is. You know, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's start there. Do you take into account who God is? And where all history is going? Do you have the fear of the Lord? Not that you're scared that He's going to give you the smackdown, but you have to be accountable to Him. And as that wisdom grows, it expands with experience, with observation, and it blossoms into discernment. Jesus will say, as a matter of wisdom, but a matter of command, don't lay up your treasures here on earth where moth, moth and rust and thief can steal. But lay up your treasures in heaven where those things won't rust, won't be destroyed, won't be taken. That is wisdom. And I will tell you, the longer I live this life, the more I know that is true. Because all the things that I bought, all the things I've invested in are kind of slowly decaying. And God is giving us something greater that lasts forever. But that takes godly wisdom. Seeing things from His perspective. And last of all, understanding that the Spirit gives, not our own, but what God gives through His Holy Spirit. It runs along, again, the line of discernment. Because oftentimes, the wisdom of what God, God is doing seems foolishness to our world. And that starts with the Gospel itself. The Apostle Paul says, I preach Christ and Him crucified. And that is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. You're saying, okay, God sent His Son, He lives His life, and then He dies? That makes no sense from a worldly standpoint. Until the Spirit opens your eyes and you see our wretched state before a holy God and how we are separated from Him and what God has done and His grace. And then all of a sudden that message, which is foolishness, starts to be the power and the wisdom of God. As it says in the, the next verse, in chapter uh, 1 of 1 Corinthians. 
But that's just the beginning. Because we need the Spirit to give us insight and wisdom because we don't have it in ourselves. We need, we need Him to open up our eyes and to give us His insight. We can't look to our world. They're oftentimes blinded and going in a different direction. But this knowledge of God's will is not just information. It's not just more knowledge to take in. It's to be lived out. And so, Paul also prays that they live a life worthy of the Lord. Look at verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, and that's specifically speaking about Jesus, or Jesus Christ, and please Him in every way. Now as you look at that verse, let's not make the mistake of looking to pay Jesus back. Oh, oh Jesus, you know, you made such a great sacrifice. Let me, let me try and pay you back with how I live my life. We cannot. He is the one who paid it all. It's impossible for us to do that. But it is a heart posture of obedience. And it runs along the lines of what or who are we living for? What or who are we living for? Because here's my fear with so many of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. We're actually living for ourselves. We say, hey, I, I prayed the prayer at VBS. I raised my hand. I went forward. Whatever that profession of faith might have been, but that's where it stopped. It was an event. It hasn't carried into your life. And you view it like, well, I got my health insurance taken care of, but it's not affecting your life and how you live every day. You're living for yourself. And that's not what God intended for you in coming to faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. He intended for us to live for Him. To live for Him. And do we understand that if we're in Christ, we are to be repurposed to live for Him, to liberate us from the bondage of living for ourselves? 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, second letter, 5.15 says, And He died, speaking of Jesus Christ, for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. He's calling us to live for Him, not for ourselves. And actually, in that place we find freedom and we're, we're released from the bondage of being self-centered. Do we understand the privilege, actually, of being called to do that? Because it's not only living in a life of gratitude within that, but He brings us into His redemptive purposes for other people. And within that, what that life looks like of living a life that is, is worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ is that of bearing fruit. That is, living for Him, we are going to produce fruit in our lives in accordance with His purposes, according to who He is. And that will include telling people about Jesus. That will include, yes, loving your neighbor as yourself and your spouse and your children and your co-worker, 
It will also mean, how do I live my life of integrity at work? Am I a good employee at school? Am I living to glorify Him there and how I treat my classmates? How I do my schoolwork? And integrity in your dealings. Am I going to be an honest businessman? Business person? What comes out of our mouths? What we do with our free time? Our sexual purity? But that fruitfulness, again, doesn't come of ourselves. It comes in abiding in Him. Jesus will say, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He or she who abides in me will bear much fruit. He who does not abide in me can't do anything. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It may mean reordering our priorities with our time, treasure, and energy. And ultimately, to grow in the knowledge of God. Not growing in our biblical or theological knowledge only, but it's experiential. Knowing the living God. To walk with Him, moment by moment, day in, day out, throughout our day. You know, that knowledge will actually come into play much more clearly as we get into chapter 2 as we deal with false teachers. But again, how do you approach your day? Are you approaching your day with knowing you're walking with Him? Knowing Him? Day in and day out? Many of us have a, a spiritual discipline of what some of us call a, a quiet time of reading God's Word and Him speaking to us and then praying, and that's great. Keep that up. But here's the question. When you're done, when you say amen and you walk out the door, are you taking Jesus with you? Or are you leaving Him behind? Is He going with you into that business meeting? Is He going with you to school? Is He going with you to the gym? Is He going with you at the store? Or are you kind of leaving him behind? That's not what Jesus intended. He intended us for to know him in every moment of every day. Now, hey, I get it. We're all human. There are moments where we get distracted by something we're focused on or what have you, and we forget that God is present. But as we learn and grow, in Him, that becomes more and more cognizant in our minds as we walk with Him, practicing the presence of the Lord in our everyday comings and goings. From another angle, again, I'm asking, are you growing in, in knowing the living God, or are you dependent upon others? Because it's easier. It's easier for me just to kind of plug in a, a podcast and listen to what this pastor or this teacher says. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's you're dependent upon their insights, their discoveries, their experiences. To the point where it's like, oh, that's, that's really cool. But you're not digging in to know the Lord yourself. You're just kind of living through their experience. And you may be encouraged... But the Father wants you to know Him for Himself. Not just 
vicariously through someone else's experience. And no one can do that for you. You have to do it yourself. You have to know what it is to walk with the living God every day, every moment, every hour of your life. Take Him along. Walk with Him. No one can do that for you. You have to do it yourself. It's going to take an investment of time. It's going to take an investment of being intentional. To say, Lord, how are we going to walk through this together? But it also means being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. So just as knowledge and wisdom and understanding of God's will does not come from our own power or faculties, but by the power of God and His indwelling Holy Spirit, so the power to live this life pleasing the Lord does not come out of our own will or determination, but through His indwelling presence. It is what I would call the exchange life of allowing Christ to live His life in you and through you. And the Holy Spirit doing in us what we cannot do ourselves. You know, we finished a series through the letter to the Philippians, but this is what the Apostle Paul would say to them in chapter 2. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so there's a, there's a command to pursue Him. But then he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. It's God who's at work. can't be you. You don't, have, you don't have the strength. You don't have the ability. I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. It's the truth of what the Apostle Paul said in his, his letter to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. It's Christ in me. In the life which I now live in my flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. It is the living Christ empowering me to live the life He's calling me to. I can't do it. You can't do it. But He can do it. And folks, that's how oftentimes I pray when I, I head into a situation where I go, Lord, I don't have this. I can't do this. But you can. You can. You can do this in me. And you know what's interesting here? This is a little side note. But he says, according to his glorious might, God gets the glory. That word might there, kratos, it can be translated might, power, or dominion. But interestingly enough, in the, in the New Testament, six times it enters into a time of what we call doxology. The word doxology means glory words, or giving glory to God. And that word is used together with giving glory to God, glorious. So let me just give you one example. I've got five. If you're interested, you can talk to me later. But 1 Peter 4.11 says, If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Okay, so they're, they're trying to live a life that's, that's you know, worthy of, of Christ. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Christ Jesus. To Him be glory, there's the glory word, 
and the power or the kratos, the might, forever and ever. Amen. The point is, when we allow God to strengthen and empower us, He gets the glory. He gets the glory. It's not us. It's Him. That's what we get to point to. But here's the thing also. The results are not always instant. God does not operate on Amazon Prime Time. Sometimes God takes the long view to work in us and through us. He says, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Endurance is the ability to bear up under difficult circumstances. Patience is the ability to bear with difficult people. This is not always a prayer we appreciate because that means we have to wait. That means we have to endure pressures, discomfort, irritation, even pain. And again, we'll need the help of the living God to do this. But God is doing this to shape circumstances or situations for change. It's not always instant. Otherwise, things might get ruined or wrecked along the way. One of my professors from seminary said he prayed 40 years before his first sibling came to put their faith in Christ. But they put their faith in Christ. It just took 40 years. But he kept holding on to the Lord. At the same time, also God is not only just shaping situations, He's shaping you and me. He's shaping you and me into the form of Jesus Christ. James 1, 2-4 Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, that is, mature and complete, lacking nothing. He is in the process of making us like Jesus. Our 20th president, James Garfield, at one time was the president of Hiram College. At one point, a father of a student came to him and complained, why is the curriculum so difficult here? And then President Garfield looked out his window and says, Sir, I'm reminded when God wants to make a squash, He takes about three months. When He wants to make a mighty oak tree, He takes a hundred years. Now which do you want your son to be? A squash or an oak tree? You know, the promise of Romans 8.28 is that God works all things for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And then you know what He says right after that? For He's in the, basically in the business of shaping us into the form of His Son. That's what He's doing. That's what He's doing. God's timing is not always clear. Sometimes He is delaying so that somebody can Repent and put his faith in him. And sometimes he's just using the long game, the long pressure to make us diamonds in Christ Jesus. And it takes a long time. Last of all, he's praying for gratitude grounded in grace. 
Verse 12. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. So gratitude that you're qualified to have an inheritance in God's family. Again, remember this is historically quite quite shocking because these Gentiles have known nothing of the living God and now are being grafted into the kingdom of the living God. But it is the Father who has qualified you to be His holy people. His saints. Not your ability to do something. If you were here Friday night for the Nailed It event, it was great. In fact, I'd say it was quite scrummy. But Pastor Neil gave a great message. And what he, he pointed to was the thief on the cross next to Jesus. And remember what the thief says. He is guilty and he knows it. But he says, Lord, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. When he shows up, what does he have to present? His baptism? No. Taking communion? No. Good deeds? No. That's, that's why he's on the cross. You know, what does he have to present? He's got nothing in himself. But he has his faith in Christ who says, if you believe in me today, you'll be with me in paradise. The Father has qualified, if you're in Christ, the Father has qualified you to be one of his children, to be one of his saints, to have that inheritance and it has nothing to do with you or what you can present. It has everything to do with what He has done and presents. Here we are qualified by the Father through the Son. What an amazing thing to be grateful for. Let's continue on real quickly. For he has rescued, verse 13, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Gratitude for His rescue from the darkness to light. That word dominion does not mean a kingdom. It means being dominated. It means being dominated. We are dominated by the darkness before we come to Christ. We are dead in our trespasses. We walked according to the power of the prince of the air, living for the lust of our flesh. We are children of wrath. We're heading towards, we're heading towards justice and we are dominated by the darkness. We are in bondage, ignorance, oppression, misery, hopelessness, cluelessness. But God shines His gospel light onto us and opens our eyes to help us see our sin and our Savior. And all of a sudden we are transferred from a place where we're under the domination by someone who hates us into a kingdom being citizens of one who loves us deeply. The kingdom of the Son He loves and here's the beautiful thing about being transferred into that kingdom. We have Christ's righteousness. And when the Father looks at you, He sees the Son He loves. He loves you. If you are in Christ, He loves you. And that's how He looks at you. What an amazing thing to be transferred from this place where we're abused, where we're blind, where we're ignorant, where we're being bullied. 
and into this place of freedom and being loved by the King. And it is Palm Sunday. (laughs) The significance that Jesus comes as God's Messiah, as His King. And the people shouted out, Hosanna, which literally means, save us! Save us, Lord! But the saving is not from the Romans or from any other human dominance. It is being pulled out of the kingdom of darkness and into His kingdom of light. That is what we can celebrate that the King does, the kingdom of the Son He loves. And then, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Gratitude for a costly redemption. The word redemption means to buy back. To buy back. But here's the deal. Here's the problem, the challenge. Sin's ransom is expensive. I can't pay it. You can't pay it. We, none of us has the, the righteous spiritual capital to pay that back. Only Jesus in offering up Himself as the sinless Son of God taking our place to pay for our injustice. Can we be redeemed? Can we be bought back to God? And that's what took place. We were stuck in debt to be sold as sins of slavery and justice, I mean, and wrath. And God buys us back. He redeems us to ourselves. Here's just a passage that celebrates this out of Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Speaking of Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Certainly gratitude is the appropriate response. Not grudging gratitude, but even joyful gratitude. Celebrating the joy of our salvation. And you know what gratitude does? It's a blessing to our hearts. It keeps us mindful of what He's done in His love and grace. It keeps our hearts from becoming hard and ungrateful. And it does motivate us to live a life that's pleasing to him. But that is what we need. A gratitude grounded in grace. So what's the application? Well, I would say one is prayer. If you're a grandfather, if you're a father, or a mother, or a grandmother, this would be a great thing to pray over your, your children. And even for yourself. As you continue to follow Christ, this is a great prayer that you would continue in all these things. But here's what I want you to know. Your salvation in Christ, your faith, is not an event or just a one-time transaction. It is a living relationship of knowing the living God, growing and living for Him, being empowered by Him, And at the end of the day, giving glory to Him. And for that we can be grateful.
grateful. Let me pray, and then I'll invite the worship team up to close us here.